Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> Shh. I want you to notice as you walk in today, where is your level of anxiety? Let's just do a kind of a, a 1 to 13, okay? Where does it, 13 is the highest, 1 is um, totally chill, okay? Just where is it for yourself? See if you can find it. Some of you might not know why it is where it is. I actually had the question earlier today about free-floating anxiety where you can't even identify it, you can't figure it out, you can just feel it. It's just kind of this under, underlying energy that's just buzzing around. Does anyone experience that? Is there anyone else who just has that kind of, you can't tag it? Yes, there's a lot of that. I want to address a little bit of that tonight and then we're going to get into the questions because um, I'm going to suggest that our society, our, our mere environment that we sit in is actually designed to freak you out. That is what it is designed to do. So for instance, parents growing up, uh, growing up with your parents, how many parents typically go, feel free to just go run off and do whatever you want and have a good time, and if you get hurt, it's no big deal, just go for it, um, have a good time. <clears throat> how many of you had those parents that were, again, encouraged that? No, 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 no. How many of you have the parents that go, be careful, stop running, don't fall, don't get hurt, I don't want you to get snatched, I don't, you know, stranger danger, don't talk, sound familiar? All those things? So even from this high, again, it's all motivated by love, it's all motivated by care and compassion and, and safety, but Again, the wiring is to avoid safety, we have to find, scan the environment, find what is dangerous, and then focus on that. It's a crappy recipe, isn't it? But parents do that all the time to little kiddos. I mean, all the time. There's a fantastic um, Radiolab episode. I was going to find it, but it would have taken too long. Uh, research study of a guy followed um, a bunch of kids in a little tiny, uh, little tiny town, um, like Kansas or Nebraska or something like that, back in the early 60s, maybe late 50s, and he followed four-year-olds who would just leave the house and walk through the middle of town, out through town, out to the lake, get in a little boat with their, you know, their seven or eight-year-old brother, go float around in the lake for a while, come back, walk through town. It sounds like Mayberry, okay? You stop off and see Floyd the barber and, and talk to Andy the chef and then go back home and nobody was concerned. Those exact same children who grew up, the same researcher went back within probably the last 10 years and studied the exact same town and the exact same children who are now the parents raising their kids. And all of those people are going, there's no way in the world I would ever let my children do what I was allowed to do because <clears throat> they are going to get hurt. Someone's going to take them. Something bad's going to happen. Even though, statistically, this little town has had a zero increase in crime or danger. 
It's the exact same thing as it was 50 years ago. But the perception has changed in some way. Isn't it crazy how our environment is wiring us for this? So let's even take media. Okay, let's take a little bit of the news. Because does the news sell um, airtime by saying, you know what, everything's great, and here's this wonderful story about this little kitten in a tree and, and how these wonderful people are doing this. Thanks for watching. That doesn't sell airtime. What does sell airtime is Stormwatch 2018. Horrible, you know, weather pattern. Remember that one last year? This massive storm that's come supposed to roll in and we got like nothing? But it was 24-hour news all the time being prepared so that you aren't stuck. You aren't going to get um, um, uh, in an accident or, or hurt in some way. Um, is your water unsafe to drink? They find these things to create problems. I mean, it's just water. No, there's something in this that might harm you. If you don't know about it, you're going to get hurt. Uh, who's moved into your neighborhood? Do you know the person down? Do you know what their criminal record is? Are they dangerous or predatory in some way? So now in your neighborhood, you don't got doors. You don't know who's going to be there. Um, did you know that there's this horrible issue within your children's school? And if you don't know about it and you aren't being doing something about it, then your kids are going to get hurt. You see the environment? Isn't this wonderful? How many say, please stop the planet, I'd like to get off. This would just be great. It's exhausting to live in this over and over and over again. So if it starts with parents, it moves up into news and media, and then we let's move it into, you know, consumerism. Because there isn't this prevalent prevalent message which says, if you don't have this thing, you are missing out. It's called FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Somehow you aren't going to be accepted. Somehow you aren't going to be as cool. Somehow you aren't going to have life as easy or be as happy. And so you have to constantly be watching for the, what is the next thing that I need? How many of you are exhausted by that? It's like, so if you are suffering from free-floating anxiety, you think this might contribute to it just a little bit. Because every message you're hearing, everywhere you're getting, it is hard to counter that. In fact, it takes intentionality to counter that. I have some of my clients who suffer um, extra from anxiety, and one of the assignments I always, always give them is you are no longer allowed to be on social media which sounds like a death sentence to some of them. It's like, no, I won't know what's happening. That's exactly right, you won't know what's happening. And you can start to relax. And every single one of them, after they get over that withdrawal you know, thing, because there's a little bit of addictive stuff going on with that, um, once they get through the withdrawal sim symptoms, and they're able to maintain the, the fast from social media, all of them go, I feel better. A little bit of ignorance is bliss thing, but I don't know if it's ignorance is bliss. I actually think it is selective information that you are being given, which is skewed negative. Do you hear that? It's not actually ignorance is bliss. The information you're being given is already skewed negative in some way because it makes someone more money, or it sells more products, or it sells more airtime, or whatever. And so we have to be able to reset ourselves. So if some of you are noticing, man, 
after spending 10 minutes flipping through Facebook here, and I am freaked out. I guess Facebook's not cool anymore, is it, huh? Um, what is it, Instagram now, or whatever it is? Okay, if you're noticing that that is freaking you out, what, what about taking a fast? <clears throat> How many of you would go, that would be hard? I mean, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. It's weird. That's, again, kind of this environmental piece that still makes it kind of hard to, to contend with this. So I wanted you to have that little piece of information. What do you do about it? This is the world we live in. <clears throat> you can't stop and get off the planet. By the way, moving to another country won't help. They have their own version of it. This is where I think we come back to scripture of whatever's good, whatever's pure, whatever's honorable, whatever's of good repute. Think on these things. By actually, it's actually called the vacuum principle. Anyone heard of the vacuum principle? If you try to remove something from your life and not put something into that place, because there's a vacuum, because there's a void, typically the old stuff comes right back in. And so you have to be able to remove, take out social media. What are you going to put in its place? Again, I've talked about it on many other past series, but it is such a powerfully simple tool. This is where a gratitude journal actually can come in, where it is like, I'm going to intentionally start to rewire my brain to see if I can find the positive things that are around me, because I have to actively counter the skewed information that's already coming into my system. And so I'm going to intentionally try to find the things that I appreciate, I like, I'm thankful for, I enjoy. And, and start to highlight those things. That's a simple tool that you can use. The fast off of social media is another one. <clears throat> the week three, where you start to, you actually have to start to have an understanding of the things that are visible on this earth are not the things that last. This is a deeper core belief system. That's why we spend a lot of time on week three going through this. What is actually real and what is actually important? <clears throat> so you can change it on the belief level as well. Those are just a couple of things to wrestle with today. Kind of uh, the last piece of content information I wanted you to have just to kind of round out the, the topics. Any thoughts or questions about the environment, the, the media that we are being bombarded with? Okay. All right, here's a question. Hold, please. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. There you go. Um, the last couple days there have been countless news articles about a protest coming up this weekend. Okay. Do you find it wrong to share that information with family and friends that live in this area about something that may or may not be dangerous for people in the city? Right. Are you perpetuating that dialogue by sharing that even if your intentions are good? Yeah. It's a, it's a tricky question when someone asks, do you think it is wrong? My radar goes up around that one. Because um, I'm always going to go back to the why are you sharing it in the first place? Why do you want to do it? And 
a lot of times motivations are good and pure and honest and reputable and again out of safety and all those kind of things and those motivations are good and they will still trigger or perpetuate this fear, this anxiety, this concern and in reality you can't always be responsible for how someone else will react to that. There are certain things, again, very, very, very clearly we should get involved with. I am not saying abstain from involvement in things. I'm saying we have to be very, very clear as to um, why we are doing what we are doing and um, this... It's a tough one. It is a tough one. So I'm going to say this very carefully. And I know I'm going to ruffle some feathers. This is opinion only. This is not scripture. This is not clinical. This is opinion only. But since I got the microphone, I'm going to give you my opinion. <laughs> um, a lot of times we have to look at the actions that we take and say, does it actually produce the results that we want it to produce? Because there's been a lot of times when, again, a protest or a, a, some sort of um, action takes place with the hope, with the legitimate hope of this is going to produce legitimate change and impact and awareness and all these things. And there is massive organization and involvement and, and all those things. And if you look at results three, six weeks, months later, little to nothing has actually changed. There's just been very little impact. And so I'm always coming back to the question of, is this actually going to be the most effective method to use or is there something different? And that's where, again, I think scripture provides counterintuitive and countercultural options that a lot of us go, that makes me uncomfortable. It feels disempowering. It feels acquiescent. It feels really uncomfortable. And yet, I think we have more options available to us than sometimes the ones that we are only presented with. And so, I think it's responsible to say, what if we do this over here? What if we do something completely different? What would happen? What would the results be? So. I don't have a clear answer for you because it's always conditional. It's always sometimes yes, sometimes no. It depends on the thing, depends on motivation, depends on people's responses. Um, I, the reason why I ask is because you brought up the social media aspect. Yep. And with the social media aspect, if you have the ability to reach a large amount of people, that their social media is a two-edged sword. Sure. But if you have the ability to reach people and yep. say, whether you like this or not, this may or may not happen, just keep your eyes open. Right. Be aware of your surroundings. Be right. careful. Maybe don't go around this. Yeah. Or if that's something you're interested in, yeah. be around it. Yeah. But when you think about community and you think about whether it's fellowship, family, friends, some people just don't pay attention to the news. Right. But they do use social media. Yeah. And again, the double-edged swords that you're talking about with the social media thing is anytime you put your opinion out there, like I just did, there will be someone who has a counter-opinion to that and wants to voice it as well. And so again, even in the best of attention, you have to be prepared for 
the dialogue slash conflict slash offending and how do you handle some of that. So again, my social media fast is more about just what is the information that is coming in and a lot of people are still under the opinion if I'm not aware I will get hurt and that is the ex that's the purpose of the exercise to find out you don't actually have to always be aware of every situation and you will still you will still be okay you will still make it because a lot of people that wiring of I have to know to be prepared. We gotta break that pattern. Uh, again, there's another fantastic book written late 70s, early 80s, I think, Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it was the advent of media that actually created a lot of this anxiety that we have because even 100 years ago, you didn't know what was happening around the world. <clears throat> Or you didn't know until six months later just because that was the speed of news. And so you were only concerned about the small things within your radius, the people around you, the village around you. That's all you had to be concerned about, which is something you can actually do something about. Because if your neighbor's barn burns down, you can get together with your, with your neighbors and help them rebuild the barn. But with the advent of media that happened faster and quicker, you now find out about, again, genocides or struggles or famines or earthquakes or natural disasters or things like this, and you have that information and your empathetic, compassionate heart goes, oh, I hurt for these people. And then, what can you do? You can't help rebuild that. You can't get on a boat <clears throat> and travel every time you see another article. And it leaves us feeling helpless. It leaves us feeling frustrated. It leaves us feeling disappointed. So what I usually tell people is, it's, it's actually great. It's actually compassionate and wise and, and um, gracious to be aware of world events. Okay, don't bury your head in the sand. <clears throat> I'm not suggesting the ostrich approach to dealing with this environment. I am saying, when you become aware of those things, you can say, I'm going to pray that the all-knowing God who, who knows the situation has people in that area who's going to help take care of that in some way, and I'm actually going to tune my radar into what are the things near me, around me, within proximity to me, that I actually can have an impact in. What are the barns I can rebuild? What are the people I can feed? What are the schools I can help clean and paint? How are the kids I can help? There's, a, there's plenty, plenty within your reach here. And you can spend a lifetime, a lifetime, ministering to these people. And, again, if we all did that, we take care of our neighborhood, and then that one works over here, and then this one works over here, and it, and it this is how it's supposed to work. Now again, people drop the ball, people still get hurt, and it's hard to sit in that helpless state of awareness, but not in proximity. And I would suggest that's what causes high levels of anxiety. It's that empathy piece. And it's just the reality of the world that we face. Now again, you can choose to get involved, you can choose to pick your cause, but you can't pick every cause. Can't be done. You just don't have enough time in the day or resources in the bank. So pick a cause. It's kind of hard, huh? 
Does anyone have some angst around some of this? Again, this is hard to kind of wrestle with. There is no easy answer. If Boy, if they hired me to come in and speak and say, Paul, you're supposed to give the easy answers. I think you'd never see me again because I don't have them. But I think we have to wrestle with them. I think we have to wrestle through these things and go, how am I going to process through some of these things? What am I going to do with my anxiety? So, we have our first volunteer who would like to come up and speak. You ready? She says she's scared. That's called anxiety. So we're going to do it in two stages here. Everyone, this is Jen. Say hi, Jen. Perfect. How are you feeling about sitting up here right now, Jen? Freaked out. Freaked out. You came up and talked to me just briefly, and what were you worried about if you came up and sat in this stool and started to share? What was the biggest concern? That people would judge me. Yeah. And so she's been spending time and energy on this bench right up here, right in this pew, trying to make sure she can control all of your guys' thoughts. How's it working? Do you feel that little pressure going on? Okay. So Jen and I said, what are you going to try to do? Not care what, not control what people think. Oh, there's a C word already. Okay, control. We love to control what people think. And so... Would it be okay if Jen sits up here as Jen and lets you guys think and feel whatever you're going to think and feel? Does that seem appropriate and fair and okay? Is that going to offend or hurt anybody? Excellent. Okay. So your challenge now is to see if you can go, it's just you and me, they happen to be watching, okay. and they get to think and feel whatever they want to think and feel. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Perfect. So I'm just talking to you. Just me. Okay. I want you to use a microphone if possible. Okay. Um, what is your body doing right now? What do you notice the anxiety floating around? Butterflies, like tightness in the chest. Yeah. Yeah. That is your limbic system saying danger, danger. That is the amygdala saying you are potentially under threat right now. And I want you to know, do I seem like a nice guy? Yes. Okay, I don't seem too dangerous? No. Do any of them seem dangerous? Like they're no. going to harm you? <laughs> no. Okay. So this is where, again, week two, we get to practice this. I recognize that it's there. I feel all these sensations and feelings in my heart and my chest and all that tight breathing. I want you to take a second. I want you to say, I'm actually going to ask for more of that tightness, more of those butterflies. Yeah, see, I like your eyebrows just went up. It's like, what are you talking about? This is exactly how it works. So again, breathe for a second and say, I want more. more. I want more. Yep. Oh God. No, I don't. Yeah, see, no, I don't. That's her brain going, danger, danger. You're, you're a moron for asking for more, and yet you are not actually in danger. Okay. So again, we have the smoke detectors that are saying something's burning, and... It's just burnt toast. We don't have to go running out of the house because you're actually not in danger, so we're going to push the toaster and put the toast back down and let it smoke and let it burn some more, and we know that we are safe. Okay. All right. So, you ready? Sure. What is the piece that has been giving you some anxiety that we can try to work through tonight? Um, it sounds crazy, but um, I was raised in a very well-known, prominent um, family in the limelight, in the spotlight, and I moved to, to, I was born and raised here, but I moved to LA for quite a while to get away, to have anonymity, and then I moved back here two years ago to be near my family, 
and um, what gives me anxiety is, is being recognized. Yeah. So I, the first church that I went to when I moved back, someone came up to me and a pastor and said my full name. Yeah. And I'm like, who are you? And he's like, I know your whole family. Da 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 da. And I was yeah. like, this is not what I need. And so no. I don't like. I I guess that gives me anxiety of running into people that I know. Yeah. If I see them at events or. I will turn the other way and hide, and it gives me anxiety. Because if they recognize you, what might happen? Are they going to produce some sort of uh, negative attention, the criticism or attack, or, or is it going to be just the spotlights on you? It'll be like the spotlights on me. Um, I mean, I'm not the, we're not the Kardashians or anything like that, but it's just um, like you have not achieved the same kind of fame that your family has. Got they it. are very accomplished, Got and you're it. like the black sheep. So yeah. I feel like you know they're like, oh, um, you you know they look at me and I don't know. I'm just assuming that they're judging me. And so if someone connects two and two and says, oh, you're Jen from that family. Oh, look at you. You haven't done as good as everyone else. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the poor guy outside, I don't know who, I forget his name, but I was yeah. asking him, like, what's the pastor's names here? Yeah. Like, how long have they been here? How long has this church been here? I don't want anybody to know who I am. Yeah. And I'm sure that sounds crazy, but it's like, I just want, I just don't want to run into people that I know. So let's, let's dissect what you just said there. I'm sure that sounds crazy. So what you've just described to me is if you walk into a room and someone recognizes you and you are potentially opening yourself up to critique and criticism and judgment mm -hmm. and you don't want to experience that, that doesn't sound crazy to me. Nobody wants to sign up for that. Does anyone want to sign up for that? Okay. None of us wants to sign up for that. So that, number one, that's not a crazy fear. Because if that has happened, let me ask a question. Has that happened? Yes. So this is actually a legitimate fear that you've had some sort of negative experience in the past. And because of that, you are now, this is the recipe we talked about in week one, you are scanning the environment because you've had negative experiences and you're trying to prevent them by finding every opportunity where that exact same thing might happen again. Right? Yeah, like who's here? Do they know me? Exactly. So. And what does it cost you? Have you had to leave churches or leave jobs or move neighborhoods or do you walk around with sunglasses and a hood over your head? No, just like, um, you know, leave events. Leave events. Or, um, you know, go a different route so they don't see me. God. I mean, it's some, I mean, it, it sounds crazy, I guess, but it's just, I don't, it's like, I don't want to get into it. I don't want to be. I don't want to be questioned. I just, yeah. <laughs> Got it. So again, we're back to that crazy thing again. How long have you been telling yourself that? That oh, this sounds crazy. Because my family's crazy. <laughs> oh. So you intentionally kind of put some distance between you and your family for healthy reasons? When I went to Los Angeles, yes. It sounds like you needed to do some differentiation from that. How has your family responded to that? Um, my family, I have a huge family. Um, they all just go about like 
go about business, but they remind me, like, you've been gone for such and such years. You haven't really been here. Okay. But they still, um, they go about, you know, the family dynamics are very set. Mm-hmm. Like, the patriarch of my family was very revered mm-hmm. and famous. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't care, but it affects the family. Yeah. So. And so the fact that you are sitting up front in, in front of this group, allowing the spotlight to be on you, opening yourself up to the potential of anyone else out here recognizing your family, because I guarantee you, every person in here is doing what I'm doing, going, hmm, I wonder what family it is, right? I know you back there. See, I know what you're doing. Because that's okay. That's just what humanity does. Corey knows. Okay. <laughs> we'll let Corey let him know. What happens if you remain differentiated? You're not part of the family, and you remain your autonomous little island over here. I would love that. You would love that. Mm-hmm. Will your family let you do that? Or are they constantly trying to pull you back in or guilt you or shame you or? Um, it's all subtle, you oh, know, sure. it's very, um, it, it, it's more, it's the, you know, it's like the dance we do, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like the games that mm-hmm. are played. Um, I couldn't be completely autonomous. There's no, there, there's no, no. way, but um, that would be amazing if I could. Got it. Have you ever come up with a, uh, I call it cut and paste answers? So you have a library of two or three answers that you give as a standard answer whenever you were put into a similar situation. So it is walking through the grocery store, someone goes, oh, Jen, you're with so-and-so. Whatever happened to you or how are you doing? You now have, you can just, you know, do I want one, two, or three? And the answer is always, I moved to LA, I'm doing just fine, thank you very much, how are you? And you deflect it back off onto them. And you actually have, if that doesn't work, you have another, really cut and paste, like into an email thing, and you can go, these are the only answers that I'm ever giving, so that I don't have to spend so much energy ducking and hiding and avoiding, I now can walk straight through something because I know what to do. Even when they start asking me questions and I don't want to be rude by saying, yes. Yes. I don't really want to answer that. Yes. And so you can actually have some cut and paste answers for those. So again, I want you to notice your anxiety right now is actually rooted in one of the two core issues that anxiety comes from. One is fear of loss, but that's also what's going on here, is it? What's the other one? Not knowing how to solve a problem. And the problem is what happens if someone asks me these questions and I get cornered in this place and I can't get out. So if we can help you actually come up with um, actually established answers, cut and paste answers, so you don't ever have to think about it. In fact, you can almost play the game of, oh, I got the same question in just a different form. That's number 63 this year. And you can keep track on your phone because there's only, what, three or four common questions that people ask you. You now have solutions for every single one of those questions now you can walk into any room, anywhere, and you are prepared. That would be awesome. Wouldn't that be great? Yes. Does that seem reasonable? Does that seem like a reasonable approach? How do you feel now, knowing that that's a possibility? We can build that. That feels amazing. How's your anxiety level? Lowered. I, I guess I never really thought of doing cut and paste. Yeah. So. 
Um, who do you have? Who's a really good friend of yours that you can kind of bounce some ideas off of? Do you have someone like that? Perfect. So your homework would be, I want you to come up with, again, what are the three or four, maybe half a dozen common questions I get all the time? And then, what are the answers I'm going to give or what is the strategy I'm going to adopt? And again, there are some really great questions, great strategies. So if someone asks you a question, you know, and they're kind of digging and you don't want to have to answer those questions, you can go, that's a great question. You know what? Right now I just don't actually have time to answer that. I'm so sorry. I hope you have a great day. That would be me. Gotta go. Gotta go. What it does is, again, it's a way to get out, but you don't have to avoid. And then part two of the homework is, and this is going to sound very, very strange, it would be take a weekend. Take a week, take a month, okay, but start with two days. Do you have a particular neighborhood or part of the city here where you are more likely to be noticed or recognized? then your job would be to take a weekend, take a Friday and a Saturday or whatever that is, and you go to every place that you would expect to be recognized, hoping to be recognized. I walk in going, man, I hope someone sees me because I've got to practice these responses. Actually have them on cue cards if you need to. Okay. It's back to that, I, this is what I'm afraid of, and so I'm actually going to step into it and I'm going to ask for more. And here's what's going to happen. Number one, you're going to find out, even though you're trying to make it happen, you're going to be like, dang it, it's 5 o'clock, and I've only run into one stinking person. I'm supposed to hit like six, and I haven't met them yet. And your brain's going to go, oh, what have I been so afraid of? Because you're trying to make it happen, rather than afraid of it accidentally happening. When you do run into that, now you get to practice. You get to say, okay, what, what's the, what's the response are they going to give me? A, B, C, or D? Oh, it's C. Excellent. And now here's the response I'm going to give them. Good. In your face. I'm out of here. Okay. Cool. Okay. How's that feel? Sounds, yeah, it feels great. In a horribly nauseating sort of way. Go with your friend. Okay? Yeah. Don't do this by yourself. Okay. Go with your friend. Um, and when you can practice intentionally stepping into it, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, it will take two, maybe three times practicing that. I hope I find someone. I hope I find someone. Until eventually you're going to go, your brain will go, this is actually a no, no big deal anymore. And I can, I, I know what to do now. And I don't have to be afraid. And you don't have to be afraid. Wouldn't that be nice? So, we'll do one last thing for me. I want you to stand up right here. Here's the microphone and say, everyone, my name is Jen. Everyone, my name is Jen. And you can look at me. And you can look at me. And you can look at me. And I'm not going to hide in this room. And I'm not going to hide in this room. And you can ask me any question you want. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you, can, you can ask me any question you want except who my family is. Perfect. And okay. if you ask me that question, I'm going to give you the answer of? Um... Okay, see, they're problem solving for you. I can't believe you asked me that. A, pol a polite answer is, thank you so much for asking. Um, I'm not feeling comfortable to share that right now. Thank you so much for asking. I'm not comfortable to share that right now. Have a good day. Have a good day. And turn and run. Okay? <laughs> good job, good job.
Isn't that amazing? When you dissect it down into these simple parts, you'll find out that there actually are solutions and you can, you can hone them and refine them and then practice them. You have to do the homework because if you don't, theory, enough, theory, theory alone isn't enough. So you have to practice it. Good. We grow best when we are safe but uncomfortable. You'll hear that over and over. Hold on a second, Nikki. Um, you grow best when you are safe but uncomfortable. Having a friend there is going to help keep you safe, but you have to get uncomfortable so you can practice. All right? I'll do it. Yes, you'll do it. If I could put a request, if you can do it one time between now and next week, come back next week and tell us how it goes. Okay. Thank you. Nikki, you had a question. I can try. Would you like to come up and try? Sure. All right. Come on up. <clears throat> Everyone say hi, Nikki. We can tell. Can you really? Careful. Steady. Need some help getting up there? No. Okay. No. Do you know what your body's feeling right now? Okay. What is the situation that tends to give you some anxiety? Just people's names. Like if I have a friend, I'll go up to them and be like, gosh, you know your name. But I don't. What's your name? Then they'll say, you should know it. I go, no, I shouldn't know it. I have a traumatic brain injury. Remember? And I hate not remembering people's names. I yeah. go up to people and I go, your name is so-and-so? And they'll go, no. I'll go, okay. Give me a hint. Yeah. One more hint. Yeah. I give up. What's your name? Perfect. I and it makes you feel so severely hate that. It's horrible. Makes me feel horrible. Terrible. The worst, it's like I'm the worst person ever. Why? Yeah. It is, you probably can't imagine because you never had to deal with it. Yeah. It's really the worst. I can, I absolutely know that it is, I would use the word embarrassing um, because you're supposed to know this because it communicates what type of relationship you have, what kind of depth of relationship you have, and if you can't remember their name. So you want a personal story? Can I give you one story so uh, it, let you know how I know how it feels? Okay. Um, year two, three, I can't remember, I was presenting during a summer series here. Okay, I can't believe I'm going to tell this story. Come on. Presenting, uh, presenting here, and someone who happens to be in the room tonight, I used to work with her, okay? We worked at another church together, and we would, you know, interact all the time, but we hadn't seen each other in several years, and I knew where I knew her from, and I knew that I was supposed to know her name, and I couldn't find it. I just, I had lost it. I couldn't find it. And you do those things that normally most people do. Hey, you. Hey, nice to see. How you been? And you're hoping they're going to throw you some sort of clue. What, what is your name? Where is it going? Because if you go, I worked with you. I know, I'm supposed to know your name. And I don't know your name. I just don't know your name. I forgot it. 
she was so wonderful and gracious because about three weeks in, she comes up to me and she says, do you know my name? <laughs> Straight up in my face. And I was caught. And that warm flush that comes up over your face and that embarrassment and you're hanging your head in shame feels terrible. Feels terrible. And I, I had to own it. I said, I have to admit I forgot your name and I should have come straight out and done what you did, which is I can't remember your name. I know I should remember your name. I have forgotten it. I don't have a traumatic brain injury to blame it on. I just have it on my, my horrible social skills and my massive, massive introvertedness, but the fact that I didn't own that. And so finally I said, no, I don't know your name. Will you remind me? Well, it doesn't matter if I have a brain injury or not. It's anybody, yep. anybody in the whole stinking world. Yeah. No matter what our issue, anybody can forget anything. It doesn't yep. matter. It's embarrassing, isn't it? I can, I can easily, easily blame it on my brain injury. I can easily blame anything on my brain injury. I can go, yeah, have a brain injury. That's why I did that. I could get pulled over by a cop for whatever reason, but like, I have a brain injury. Yeah. I didn't remember not to do that. Sounds like you don't actually want to bring attention to your brain injury. I don't. You know what? I've got a freaking brain injury. So what? It's yeah. doesn't make me who I am today. It's you want to be seen as more than your injury. It's not who I am. I am who I am. I have a brain injury. That doesn't make me who I am. You're right. I absolutely agree. So, have you tried any techniques to remember names? A lot of people have, there's no, a lot of name I'll, techniques. I'll try to remember their face. I'll like, I don't know, I'll, I don't know how to explain it. Yeah. I try really hard, and, like, and then there are times I'll be like, forget it. I'll either remember or I won't. And then there are some people just comes to me, and then there are other people I'm like, yeah, I probably won't remember. And then next week I'll be like, dude, I still remember. Who are the and people then, that stick? Do you have particular names that you actually, they do stick? No, not one. So it's like everybody. Like, how long did it take me to get you? Yeah, yeah. And then Sebastian, I always called him Jeremiah. Yeah. So one of the things you can do is when you meet someone and you get the name. I come name, up with nicknames with rhymes. You can do that. But what I'm going to suggest is when you meet someone, you actually can, you can front load it and say, you got to know that I'm going to ask you your name three, four, 19 oh, times. times, okay? Um, keep track. See how many times. Almost make it a game rather than a shame, okay? When you turn it into a game and you tell people this is going to happen, it removes all of that embarrassment and it removes all of that awkwardness because people can now understand, oh, here she comes again. And oftentimes, you can actually ask them, I need you to prompt me with your name. So, hello, my name is Paul. It's nice to meet you. Or, hey, do you remember my name's Paul? Okay, great. And they can actually 
actually can take away some of that embarrassment and you can tag team it by making it a game. And you don't, don't worry about memory techniques and don't worry about, again, rhyming's okay and nicknames are fun, but when you call it out and just make it a game, now it takes away the shame of that. Well, naturally, I just give people random names. There you go. That I called one guy Barbie for a long time. See, that works really, really good. I could think that that would almost be endearing to some people, you know. Wouldn't that be nice? And, and then there's one person who comes up to me and goes, Dad, my name is... And I go, yeah. I know. Yeah. You didn't need to tell me. Yeah. Well, it took me four or five years to remember your name. No, it didn't. It actually did. But now it's stuck. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> you know sorry. who else's name I know? Jamie. Say hi, Jamie. Jamie was the one who was kind enough to call me out. Bless her heart. <laughs> okay. It was... I'll take that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. She was very kind to call me on the carpet, and I got to be humbled. So, Jamie has a special place in my heart. <laughs> I have to get down now. Yes, you do. Would you need any help? Like 20. It is way down there. That's need some help? Like 20 feet. I don't need Okay. I who, don't need help for anything. Who else? Who else would like to come and try? One seat, no waiting. For some, this might be the hardest part of the entire series, and that's okay. We've already watched a couple brave people. Jen can come back again if that would be... <laughs> no. Absolutely not. You want to try? I got two people. You can Rochambeau for who wants to go first. Right here. You want to try? I thought you were waving at me. Okay. It's hard, isn't it? <laughs> Tell everyone your name. My name's Yesenia. Thanks for coming up. Do you notice what your body is doing? My heart's racing. See? It's that little smoke detector in our head going danger, danger. So take a deep breath. Let it pound even harder. It's a weird thing to do, but let it pound even harder. Because again, you're safe here. Okay. There you go. Pause for just one second. Most people carry their anxiety in their face, okay? Everything in the jaw and down here, that's why you have what's called the permagrin. It's that I'm totally freaked out and I'm smiling and I can't stop smiling, or I, my mouth is clenched, okay? For whatever reason, we carry a lot of our anxiety here. That's why people's cheeks will tremble and shake, their jaws will, that's why we chatter and, 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 and shiver in some ways, because we, for whatever reason, we carry all of our weight in here. So if you want to learn how to decompress your body in some way, actually start with your eyebrow, your forehead, and then imagine what it feels like to have like an egg cracked on your head and then let it kind of start to come down and down and you let the muscles here relax and then let the cheek muscles relax and it feels like they're sliding off your face like this and you let this lower jowl and jaw area start to relax. And when you can start to change some of this biology, you'll notice that the rest of your system starts to calm down. And when you feel this getting tight again, and that permagrin, you can, okay, hold on. 
Okay, we can relax all that right in there. Good job. What's the piece, what's the story that's providing a little bit of anxiety for you? living in the present. Yeah. Are you living in the future or are you living in the past? Um, I think I'm kind of stuck in the past. Kind of stuck in the past. Is it a particular event in the past or time frame in the past? Yeah. Okay. Is it anything that you can put some more words to or would you rather just keep that piece private and you're totally okay if you want to. You don't have to share what that is. We can just work with an event. I think it's an, an event or what if or a relationship or loss of time. Or okay. So we already have one of the two elements identified. It's a loss of something, loss of time, you said. Okay. How long ago was this time period or this event? <clears throat> Five years to a month. Five years? Yeah. Is that when it ended five years ago? And it's been five years since that event? Um, no, the end was like a Oh, the end was like a month ago. So this is still pretty raw, still pretty fresh. Sounds like, did it start five years ago? Mm -hmm. So you've had the last five years, 60 months, and now you've had one month off. Does that sound about right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And if you were to describe the feelings of those five years, scary, hard, embarrassing, Frustrating, lonely. What would be some of the words you would put that, that describe that five-year period? And if you, mm. um, I don't know. Sense of failure. A sense of failure. Got it. Can you put any more words to that? What what was the failure? And if you don't want to, you don't have to. You don't only share what you want to share. Okay. That's okay. It sounds like something happened in this five years because it didn't turn out, because you've lost that. It feels like a sense of failure. Am I hearing that right? Got it. Yeah. And because of that, you are still feeling what? Is it, what's the message you're hearing in your head? Well, I feel conflicted. I'm like, in terms of like surrendering to God and just being in the present. Yeah. 
Is there a lot of if onlys? If only I had done this, if only I had done that. Mm -hmm. well, yeah. Those are hard, aren't they? Those are exhausting. Have you ever written them out? Yeah. So this is where that principle of speak out to reduce the freak out, remember that principle? Yeah. This is where you can take all of those messages and scripts that you have going on in your head and actually put them on paper. No matter how, how reasonable or unreasonable, how legitimate or illegitimate they are. So if it is the, if only I would have, blank, 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 blank. If only I would have, if only, and if you have one page or 50 pages, what tends to happen is once you start to put it onto paper, it makes it real. Because right now it's kind of bouncing around in this front part of your head. And it gets gooey, it gets really sticky, and it's hard to kind of separate out reality from, from bad expectations. And so if you start to write these things out, what I found a lot of people tend to happen is it's actually only about 10, 12 that are on repeat. It's about, it's different versions of the same message, but it is really only half a dozen to a dozen core things. And now it's like, oh, these are the things that I need to start working on. And it makes it more manageable. And then you can start to dissect them one by one. Does that make sense? Um, the other thing is, it sounds like, again, there's some loss for you. It feels like you've lost something. Am I hearing that right? Have you ever written down what you've lost besides time? No. Do you know what some of those other things might be? Again, you don't have to share them right now, but do you know what some of those other things might be? Well, yeah. growing in my faith during that time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like you would, would have liked to have grown more. Yeah, not just spiritually, but in different areas. Yeah. And so you've lost a certain amount of time in your life, right? Yeah. Do you feel like a little behind the curve now? Other people are further ahead and now you're having to catch up? Yeah. Got it. Is this something that you're actually completely free of, or are there any other kind of lingering things that you still have some involvement or some connection, so you're totally free? Okay. When you typically have a loss of, again, relationship or loss of experience or loss, and there's some sort of things that still keep you enmeshed or entangled, it's really difficult to obtain that closure. It's difficult to actually be able to truly move 
on. And so I'm always trying to help people in my office go, what are the last, I mean, do you have cell phone bills that are still together? Do you still have some sort of retirement account? Do you still have an email that you're still sharing? Are you guys still on a shared Google Calendar? What are the last few things that you have and being able to provide some sort of separation in that? Again, whether that is occupationally or relationally or neighborhoodedly, all these kinds of things, being able to get some sort of separation and very clear lines that always promote some healing and helping. Last question for you. Do you have any difficulty getting clarity even around your thoughts around some of this? Or does it still feel like the thoughts are a little muddled? Yeah, I think it manifests. It comes in waves. It, like feelings of sadness, feelings of anger, insomnia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just lack of being able to concentrate. Yep. So what you're describing there might be very typical symptoms of um, PTSD or some activated trauma still. And again, I don't know the details of the story, but your brain is still in fight, flight, or freeze mode. And that's why it's hard to get kind of clarity around some of that. Um, have you had opportunity to actually work with a, a professional a counselor in some way who can actually ask you the questions and help you start to clarify your own thinking? Not yet. Got so, so for instance, Jen here, she was very clear about what the issue was. Her thoughts were very clear. It wasn't a lot of ambiguity. But sometimes situations just actually muddle your thinking ability. That's normal. That is absolutely okay. And that is where sometimes a professional can help clarify not only the solution, but the actual thinking process so that you don't feel stuck or you don't feel lost anymore. You're not in that reactive mode. You can become proactive and going, oh, when this happens, it's because of this, this, and this. And you get that clarity. You actually start to trust your own thought process again. And when that happens, your body goes, ah, isn't that nice? And so it sounds like that might be a piece that can help get that muddledness clarified for you a little bit. Does that make sense? If you have some more questions around some of that, I'd be glad to talk to you afterwards so that you don't have to have everyone looking at you because it's a little weird, isn't it? Thank you for coming up. Everyone give her a hand. Hard thing to do. That trauma piece, that was kind of what we talked about uh, week one, where you still have activated stuff in your system. Okay. Um, Caesar Milan, dog training. Does that to dogs all the time? Um, what was I saying? Oh, that stuff that is activated in your system and you're not really clear as to what's actually triggering it right now, you know, what an environment is, that's still probably signs that you have some sort of um, trauma and that, that limbic system is still, that smoke detector is still in your brain going, danger, 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 because you've been in that state for so long. For some individuals, if you've been in that traumatic state for that long, um, it actually changes neurochemistry. 
That's just how it happens. The cortisol levels and neurochemicals that are actually designed, uh, adrenaline and stuff, to keep you safe, when those things get turned on, they actually can stay stuck on for a while. And that's where sometimes you actually need um, medication to help reset neurochemicals. And it's, it's used for a temporary time frame to get you out of that biological flooding that's happening within your system. So again, it's a balancing act. You have to have a professional who can actually tell you, actually right now it's going to be helpful to have some sort of anti-anxiety anti meds because all of the thinking and all of the praying and all of the surrendering and all of the pushing the toast back down isn't actually going to stop it. You actually need to have a little bit of a chemical kick to get out of that. Some of you don't need that. Some of you do. But consult your neighborhood professional for that. Okay. Anyone else want to try this? We had one or two more. Anxiety issues can be complex, difficult things. Sure. Thanks. Pay attention to your hearts, everyone, as you listen to these stories. Notice what's going on inside you and how you want to sit with them or how, how your heart goes out towards them. It's kind of a fascinating experience. Hi. Hi. Give us your name. Christina. Christina, welcome. Thank you. What do you notice going on here? Kind of similar as I think everyone else. My heart's. Yeah, I think it's the like chair, that. actually. If, it might be. Yeah, it might be. So take a deep breath and say, I'm going to actually ask for more because they're not that terrible. They've been okay so far. I'm a pretty nice guy. Got it. Um, what's the piece uh, that's been kind of causing some anxiety for you? Um, well, mine started probably, wow, when I was I'm 33. It started when I was 22. Okay. I had a really rough job for three years. Yeah. Um, had a really bad boss that was yeah. looking back on it now probably would say like verbal abuse had sexual comments racial comments made towards me and stayed in that for three years eventually mm. quit slash got fired when I reported him yeah. um, and I've sought through some professional help and I've worked through a whole lot of things, but I find still now I work in a job, I have a great boss, mm -hmm. but I find still sometimes when he calls me into his office, even if it's just yeah. come check in and talk about this meeting, like that will kind of kick in and yeah. sometimes I'll get super tense. Yeah. Um, I had some health issues that kicked in after that job too. I had a lot of fatigue. Um, yep bunch of other stuff. They looked at cortisol levels for me and mm -hmm. all sorts of things. And so sometimes, again, if I'm going through a stressful thing at work, yeah. that can kick in. And I, yeah. even if I don't even realize it, I think I had like a normal day and then I'll just like feel like I got hit by a bus. Um, yeah. But yeah, so if, again, I've been working through things, but then just trying to figure out are there additional things I can continue to do. And, and I've been trying to ask for more. I've been trying to step Good. up and say things that I wouldn't normally do, like asking for more responsibility, even though I'm like, uh, yeah. but if I do, then I, yeah. more responsibility also equals more risk. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just Great kind of fighting scenario. those things that, and sometimes I'm good, but then sometimes when I get asked to do things or I meet with other people that I don't get along with the best in my office, even though I love most of the people I work with, there's still always a few that you have that tension or you don't work with yeah. the best, and some of those thoughts will come back because, like, 
don't speak your mind, don't stand up and stand up for yourself, don't even ask for more responsibility, just kind of yeah. stick within your Those are survival little bubble. So, yeah. so can I ask a few more clarifying questions around some of this? Sure. You quit your job when you were 22? Uh, no, when I was 25. When you quit the job. So you started at 22 yes. to 25 for three years. Yes, it's my and first you're now 33. job. It was your first job. What a wonderful model to set up for every job. That's actually an important piece right here because um, that creates what's called a template. Okay? It can happen around sexual things, it can happen around food things, it can happen around financial things, and it can happen around occupational things, which is like, oh, this is my first job, and therefore this is how all jobs are now compared to. All the time, all the time, all the time. Um, and because it was your first job and it was a crappy situation, to say the least, um, that template has been laid down and it's going to take a little bit of extra effort. If it was your third or fourth job, your brain just goes, oh, this is just one crappy job, but I still have potential of good jobs because this was your first job. Again, it lays down that template, which is unfortunate. Um, boss was male or female? Male. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you said you ended up reporting and losing your job because of the reporting. Um, anything happened after that in terms of that job or that company? Or did you just get fired slash quit slash leave? Yeah, it was kind of a mixture. I ended up getting suspended and it had happened with a couple of my other coworkers. So I could kind of see sure. where it was going and I was sure. kind of at this point where I was like, I've had enough and I think I need out. So I got it. I left. Got it. Um, any other, again, continuing things with the reporting that you did, any other inter interviews or conversations from that organization because of the reporting that you did after you quit? Not specifically because of the reporting. The, yeah. Well, I ended up filing for unemployment and I had to go fight for that, sure. so that yeah. took like six months, um, but yeah. not since that. Okay. I will say that I worked in the entertainment industry my whole life, okay. and this is with Disney, so like yeah. the largest company, and I feel like can't ever fully escape no. the largest entertainment They're company everywhere. in the world. Everywhere. So even though I'm not in the same industry, like I have co-workers today who's going to Disney World, and so right. it's like, ugh. Right. Um, okay, so that's helpful. Uh, you said you've already done some kind of counseling work around some of this. What's some of the stuff that your counselors encourage you to try? Um, one of them had talked about he called it like retraining the brain. So when I would, like my first job, when I would get called in, the only time I would speak with my boss, it was always negative. Yeah. And so then with my new managers, and I've had all good managers mm -hmm. since then, um, even when they would call me in, schedule a meeting, my brain would immediately go like, this yep. is a bad thing, danger, it's danger. gonna be yeah. danger. Um, and so the counselor had said just to, one, be aware of that pause and then talk myself through, like, why do I feel this? I feel this way. Is this a legitimate fear? Like, yeah. has, I know my boss now, and has this happened with my boss now? No, it hasn't happened with my boss now, yeah. so. Boss is male that. or female now? Male. Okay. And you've been in this new job for how long? A year and a half. A year and a half. 
And again, all signs indicate positive interactions and experiences and things like that. So what you're describing is a very common approach to solving feelings problems by trying to think through it. And that's not always the best approach uh, at times because you can't always solve feelings problems by thinking about it. You actually have to feel your way out of feelings problems, which is a little weird. And again, most people go, why would I want to do that? I want to stop the feelings. I want to not have to experience this anymore. And so there's a couple things that you could try. Um, first off, um, did your counselor ever have you um, write letters to your former boss? No. Really? Got it. So this is where um, what you're actually describing is a little form of, called, of PTSD because you're kind of still reliving these things when a similar situation happens. You're called into the office. You knew your body's been trained. This is how it's going to turn out. This is how it's going to be bad. And so your body's going, I'm already prepared for it, and I've got to, got to be prepared for the worst case scenario. So we want to write a new ending to the story because you only have one ending to the story in your, in your original story. Uh, which is, I get called in, I get yelled at, I feel terrible, I feel helpless, I feel powerless, I leave the office with my tail between my legs, I'm not allowed to talk to anyone, I feel like crap, and I still got to do my job in the happiest place on earth. Which is a little mixed messages. Um, what I would suggest is what, what provides um, some help is when you can say the things that you were never allowed to say because you would have gotten fired, you would have gotten in trouble, it would have caused him more anger, more frustration. Again, you've learned the survival technique of be quiet and be small. And so I would encourage you to write a letter. And in this letter, it is Dear Mike, or whatever his name is, Here's all the things that I wish I could have said to you, but I never had a chance to. Because now you're in a safer place, now he has no more power over you, and your brain will now go, oh, here's the last half of that story. Because PTSD is, uh, everything's normal, um, I'll go for you guys, everything's normal, some sort of um, traumatizing or, or overwhelming event happens, I go into survival mode, I have really strong feelings about that, What's supposed to happen is you come around the other half of that circle. I now figure out a way I can get out of that. I express and feel those feelings completely. And then I go back to normal homeostasis up here of now I feel better again. That's how we're supposed to go all the way through the cycle. But when you go, here's normal, bad event happens, I have really strong feelings about it, and I have to be quiet. You now stay stuck down here. So we got to get you to this other half of the cycle, which is actually, here's everything I wanted to say to you, which I never was allowed to say to you. And you write it out in that letter. And you write it out as um, colorful as you need it to be, as appropriate to the situation. You don't have to send it. You don't have to send it. I'm not asking you to put a stamp on it and send it to him, okay? Because that's actually not necessary. By you just going, I don't have to be quiet anymore. I don't have to be that, adopt that same strategy of just being small. I can say what I want to say, okay? 
your brain then goes, oh, there's the other half of it. I feel better now. Oh, okay. You might have to do it several times, okay? I have another counselor friend. This is the worst, absolute, craziest uh, technique, and it sticks in your head, even though it is so cheesy. You have to get your power back, okay? P-A-W-A, -A, okay? You have to... Um, uh, practice aloud while alone. P-A-W-A. -A. Practice aloud while alone. So it is saying the things to your boss that you're never allowed to say. You don't have to say it to him. And when you do that, you get your power back. It's not mine. But it sticks and it works. You also can write a letter to Mr. Boss's boss. Here's what, I can't believe you would hire this guy. Here's how he treats it. Do you know what this feels like? Um, why in the world does he stay employed? And you can just put language to that. And by doing that, you're not just thinking and talking yourself out of the feelings, you're actually writing a new ending of the story. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And if you've never done something like that before, you're gonna be surprised at how cathartic it can be. Because again, your brain goes, oh, that's what it feels like. If you have some good friends that are safe and wonderful and kind, you can read it aloud to them. And they can become a great cheerleading section. They can go, bring it on. If you can even say it standing up and saying it with some sort of um, energy behind it. You know, I can't believe you would do this. What were you thinking? And again, you don't have to go smash pillows. It isn't any of those things. We're not trying to do any of those kind of old techniques of anger resolution things. But again, you were looking for congruence. What's on the inside is now on the outside. And when that happens, your brain goes, that feels really, really good. So that would be step one, is writing and speaking to get your power back. Step two, and this is if your present boss is, again, it's appropriate professionally. Um, I would suggest it's appropriate professionally because um, I think new work situations can actually be redemptive. Does he know any of this story? A little bit of it, not oh, in detail. Not in detail. But a little bit. So when you can give your new boss, and again, do it in a professional way, saying, can I tell you my previous work story? And again, here's what this past boss would do and treat me like, and my response would be, and I need you to know that every time you call me into your office, I am being flooded with all of these old things, and it's not your fault. You're not doing anything wrong. You're just, you're a very appropriate, very kind boss. I really thank you, but you need to know when I walk in, I am in this triggered state. Would you be willing to let me practice kind of working through this with you? And again, your boss can now become redemptive in this. So when he calls you, it's not just about whatever task he needs you to do. It's now a little, okay, I, I just forgot your name, shoot. Christina. Christina, thank you. When I call Christina, see? You're not alone, Nikki. When I call Christina, not only am I going to say, hey, I need you to come do this task. Can you have a meeting with me? He can go, hey, would you come meet me in the office? We're totally fine. Everything's good. Um, and, and I'd love to have a meeting with you. Come on in. And we'll take a few minutes for you to breathe through this. And then we'll get to the task. And now, you're, every time he calls you is a redemptive experience until he calls you and it's like, yeah, what do you want? Okay. And, and it actually stops being triggering anymore. 
That can be a work environment. That can be a wonderfully redemptive experience. And again, if it's your boss is willing to do that, um, you might be in a really fantastic place. And again, keep professional boundaries and all. You don't have to back the truck up and download deep personal information. We're not asking for any of that. But as it relates to work environment stuff, it's appropriate for them to know those kind of things. Does that make sense? Does that seem anywhere in the realm of possibility? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. Okay. Any other questions around some of that? Nope. Okay. Experientially, like you're doing right now, being able to come up here and sit and talk is what actually starts to change these things. So for those people who have some levels of anxiety, move to the what can I do about it? Not just even what can I think about it, what can I pray about it, what can I feel about it, what can I do about it? And typically it is the, I got to do the things that make me throw up, I got to do the things that drive me crazy, I might need some professional help who are going to kind of structure that with me. But when we do things and we write new endings to the story, we feel better. We feel better. Christina, thank you so much for coming up. Very nice. Unless there's anyone who's just dying and you're going, I better take it right now, I better take it right now, I'll let you guys get out of here. It's 8.32, so we can be done just a few minutes early and you guys can have a nice evening. But last call, if there's anyone who's going, I really should, I really should, but I really can't, this is your chance. Last call. You can ask a question. All right, we'll let questions happen. We should make you sit up front. Yes, sir. You may have, I, I missed the first couple weeks, so you may have addressed this, but can you speak a little bit to, like, uh, addiction to anxiety? Addiction to anxiety. Getting energy from anxiety. That's a good question. A lot of people go, hmm, yeah. Um, our bodies, we, we, we gravitate towards what is familiar, and we tend to reject the things that are unfamiliar. That doesn't mean if they're healthy or unhealthy. We gravitate towards familiar, even if that is nasty or unhealthy or bad, because we just, it's expected. It's predictable. And predictable means, ah, oh, we can relax into that. And anything new, anything different, you have to learn, I know there's a sweet spot right there. We have to learn different techniques and you're in that learning state and you're a newbie again and you stumble and you fall and it feels awkward and weird and none of us like that state and so we tend to stay away from those states and we stay in what we, in what we know. Again, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes is, we choose a known hell over an unknown heaven. We choose a known hell over an unknown heaven because one is known and one is unknown. And so, for people who are going, I'm constantly putting myself into situations that promote or trigger anxiety. You have to take one step back and you have to go, how is this serving me? It's called a secondary gain. Okay? Is it because it's familiar or is it because I get some level of compassion or is it because, you know, this person treats me in this way and if I actually have to stand up for myself, I'm not going to get this response from them anymore and I don't want to lose that. So some always some level of secondary gain when it comes to um, recreating or gravitating back towards those anxiety-provoking experiences. There's some level of familiarity or there's some level of secondary gain that is functioning in some way. Does that make sense? Is that tracking with everybody? There are some individuals who have trained themselves to intentionally and purposefully um, 
get out of their comfort zone. So imagine this little box around your feet. And again, this is a, I just love this idea. This box around your feet, and as long as you stay in that box, you're, you can function just great. It's familiar, it's nice, it's your comfort zone. It feels really, really nice, right? This is where I want to stay. There are some people who go, this is a pretty small world. I don't want to live in a small world anywhere. So they're going to pick a line, they're going to come right up to it, and they go, okay, I know this is going to suck, and I know I'm not going to like this, but here we go. I'm going to challenge myself. And people do it in one of two ways. They might challenge themselves like this. They might go, whew, that was a good experience out there. I've, I'm, I'm growing and changing. That was great. That's not what produces change. This is what produces change. You step over that line and you go, oh, I hate this. Oh, this is uncomfortable. Oh, I got to go what neighborhood and I ask for what people to see me? I hate this. But the longer you stay here, you find out that it actually doesn't kill you and you can still breathe and you can still function and it actually becomes comfortable and now your world is now this bigger. How about that? You have a lot more freedom to move around without fear, without anxiety. And then that same person goes, okay, I got to do it again. Here's this line over here. It's a whole other area. Oh, I hate it. Oh, this sucks. Oh, okay. Starting to feel good. Starting to feel fine. I can still breathe. And now the world is much, much bigger. And then they go, here's another one. And they challenge it again. And they challenge it again. And they challenge it again. And there are some people who've gone through life saying, I don't want to live a small life anymore. And they have continually challenged themselves into that growth or that challenge zone. And now their boundaries are so far, they can try all sorts of things. And they're not really rigged out by it. It's amazing when you see those people. They're adventuresome, and they're confident, and they're courageous. Until they eventually bump up against some big line. It's like, okay, I'm going to step over again. Because now it's a practiced mindset, which says, I'm not going to stay stuck. I'm not going to stay limited. But it requires you to actually take that step over that line, over and over. Now, take one step over that line. Okay? You go from your comfort zone to your challenge zone. If you take 10 steps out of that box too fast, that's called crisis zone. Okay? You don't learn when you're in that state. You actually uh, trigger those survival mechanisms, those survival strategies. You shut down. You actually, your, your limbic system kicks in, and you're not actually learning and growing. It's the same thing as trying to put a kid at a desk and learning how to do algebra while he's in the middle of a busy intersection on Burnside. Your brain doesn't learn because you got these cars whizzing by you all the time. You can't, you can't absorb new information. You're not able to learn when you're in that state. So you have to, again, find whatever line it is and take one step over. Do it with friends. Do it with people nearby. And they can cheer you on. They're not there to take you out of that place. You stick to with it. You can do it. You can grow. You got this. That's what refuge is about. You spend every week with a group of people with that exact same mindset. They're going, I'm going to come to this group, and I'm, I'm scared to be in this group, and it's vulnerable, and it's exposing, and yet I'm going to come every week. And Monday nights now become redemptive because the things that once held me back and the things that once kept me stuck, I no longer have to go through it alone, and I no longer have to experience the same fears that I experience. 
Refuge is redemptive. It's a good name, by the way. Refuge. It's a place to get out of the storm. It's a place to relax and let your guard down. It's the best way to spend the beginning of any week, hands down. Sit with these group of people right here. It's, it's, it's a wonderful experience. So that would be the addictive piece of anxiety. Again, it's familiarity or it is secondary gain in some way. You can play with some of those. Any other questions? Now's the time. All right, right here. Hold, please. I lost the microphone. There it is. I um, am thinking that, that that through this process that maybe there's a desensitizing that happens that you're saying do it and do it and like sometimes I think there ought to be a law against doing something for the first time because it's so hard for me. Yeah. And but the and doing it then. There's a comfort in being de uh, desensitized. Uh, desensitized is a good word. I actually like the word resilient. Someone who is resilient can handle greater pressure or greater strain and they don't snap. It's the same thing as, uh, that's the reason why we go to a gym and we work out. The first time you go there, you're not actually becoming desensitized. Your body still has to grow, but you might only be able to lift the bar. That's all you can get up while you're doing a bench press. And you walk out of there, and you know those muscles are sore. You ever had some of that? You know someone comes up to you and pokes you, and it's like, ow, I just worked out. Stop it, that hurts. And then you go back, and they put two and a half pound weights on each side, and you lift the bar plus five, and then they add a little bit more and a little bit more. You're actually building resilience. Your body is able to handle more and, and carry more without breaking down or without being as fragile. And that happens emotionally, that happens relationally, that happens spiritually, um, and it happens physically. We, just, it's easier to see when it happens physically. But again, there are some people who find those lines and they step over them and it's working out those emotional muscles. I call it productive pain. Because again, you walk out of the gym and you're sore. It hurts. It's painful. But it's productive. Because you're working out in a place where you are safe. you got spotters there. you got a coach who's showing you how to do it the right way so you don't injure yourself or blow out your shoulder or something like that. They're showing you how to do it but you have to do it. Man, I hate my coach sometimes because he's making me, he's the guy who's, who, who says, he's the guy when I'm doing it, I'm going, that's all I can, that's all I can do. And he goes, nope, give me three more. And it's like, Travis, you dirtbag, I don't like you right now. Because he knows he can push me just that one little bit more and I'm going to get, get to that one place where I build resilience. And it is, it's actually more desensitization towards pain. We actually set our lines differently and we say we can, we're willing to handle more than we think that we actually can right now. So. Well, I like that and I'll study that word resilience. Yes. And, um, I see that resilience comes with practice. Resilience is absolutely a learned skill. I would suggest that that would be a, and again, 
for those teachers in the room here. I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I would love it if school became that. We teach critical thinking skills to our students rather than just information. Back before information was so readily available, you had to learn facts like that. Now, I would love it if teachers could teach students how to think through problems and problem solve and rationalize and dissect and, and understand because you can find information at the touch of a, a touch of a computer screen right now. You don't need to memorize half of the stuff that you had to because you just you needed it and you didn't have access to it. So now let's learn critical thinking skills and we build that emotional and that cognitive resilience. Isn't that fascinating? And so now problems don't don't frustrate you. It's like, oh, it's just a problem. I know how to solve it. And therefore the anxiety. And therefore the anxiety goes away. See how this all works, comes around full circle? Isn't that fascinating? Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.